So let's begin this morning by uh, reading our concluding section of the book of Galatians. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. <clears throat> Let's open in prayer. I thank you, Father, that you've given us the opportunity this morning to brave the elements and to gather to worship. Would you, Father, speak to us this morning, each and every one. Show us just glimpses of your glorious grace and your mercy to the words that Paul's given us. Father, help us to set aside all those ways in which we try to please you in our own self and seek to sow to the Spirit, seek to walk by the Spirit, seek to keep in step with the Spirit, and therefore bear his fruit in our lives. That's what we really desire, Father, not to bear the, the works of the flesh in our lives, but to actually see your Spirit working in our lives and us bearing fruit for you. So help us, Father, this morning as we look into your word to understand more what that means. And if I ask that your Holy Spirit would just illuminate any dark corners of our lives where we're still holding on to uh, those areas that we think are really important and have not surrendered it to you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is the morning in which we actually finish our preaching excursion through the book of Galatians. Good thing it's not as long as, as Genesis, huh? Um, or Romans. But it was interesting that this text really strikes me, in kind of a, it's kind of a peculiar way for Paul to end this letter. I mean, the usual pattern for one of his letters to a church, really, is to develop the theology that he wants them to understand, then show them how to apply it and encourage them to do so, and then he gives some encouragements on how to put it into practice. And then he usually concludes by kind of coasting into his final greetings with shout-outs to key people in the church who have helped him, and then usually a benediction someplace along the line. But then we come to Galatians. Chapter 6 is not a long glide path into a soft landing with gentle reminders and greetings and a benediction. 
Just when we think that Paul's heading for a gentle closing, he suddenly gets recharged by the Holy Spirit and he picks up the pen himself to finish this scroll that he's working on. These weren't books, these were scrolls. Then he finishes with yet another warning about the people who've come to lead the church astray. And people that he knew firsthand because as soon as he got back to, as we're going to see, got back to Antioch after completing this trip, he met these people firsthand. They showed up in Antioch. So he knew who they were. Well, the subjects of this particular section really are kind of clear. But the relationship between them is murky. And it took me, honestly, it took me a long time to figure out what's he getting at? Just a, just a collection of miscellaneous sayings. But I discovered, I think, a pattern. That is that verse 6 really contains the general principle, which is to share good things with those who teach, which must mean that they weren't doing a very good job of it or they were doing it incorrectly. And then verses 7 through 10 deal with this principle of sowing and reaping, which is a long-time biblical principle. And then in verse 11 to 17 really contrasts the motivation of the Judaizers with that of the Apostle Paul. So to make sense of this section, at least for me, I think we're going to look at a little different order than what is presented in the Bible. Hopefully that doesn't throw you too far off. We're first going to look at the theme of this final section, which is actually in verse 6, I think. And then we're going to turn to verse 11 to 17, because that's where we're going to find the problem that underlies the passage. Namely, the gospel has been perverted by the Judaizers into just external religious activities. And then at the end, we're going to consider this principle of sowing and reaping that's laid down in those verses, which are Paul's solution to the problem raised in verses 11 to 17 of why you need to embrace the cross. So, let's begin with the general principle that leads into the final section of the letter. And that is, that the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. As I mentioned last week, this is a lot more than just finances. This is sharing all good things, he says, with the one who teaches. Well, what good things had Paul received from the cities in Galatia where he preached? Well, he'd seen a great response to the gospel, especially in Antioch, followed by uh, a jealous response on the part of the Jews and also the government elites. And he was kicked out of town. And he was thrown out of Antioch. He was thrown out of Iconium. And he was actually stoned to death at Lystra, although he miraculously recovered. So the good things he received for his teaching, he recounts in verse 17. For now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. And then after he leaves the area, that group from Jerusalem, as I mentioned, the Judaizers actually came to Antioch, where he was teaching, to undermine his teaching yet again. Their message is simple. In Acts 15.1, here's their message. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So the principle of sharing with those who teach really isn't accidental here or just incidental. It's Paul's response to a problem that I believe was a direct result of the teaching of the Judaizers. So to understand how the teaching of these Judaizers resulted in the neglect of those who taught, we're going to look at those final verses in the chapter to see what the problem is that brought about his instruction. And that is deals with the cross versus circumcision. Look at verse 11. See with what large letters 
I am writing to you with my own hand. Now, there's nothing in these final verses that we haven't seen before. But it's crucial because now he's moving more from the theology of these people to, to their motivation and how they go about doing things. But how important are these verses to Paul? Well, he says, he grabbed the pen from his amanuensis. That's a scribe. That's not senior wensis to those of you who are old like me. Um, there were no typewriters in those days or word processors, so if you're going to emphasize something, you had to write big. And that's what he did. He took it away. So using these large letters is to inform the reader of how important this is, as well, of course, as a reminder of who wrote it. So he boils down the issue with these outsiders as conflict between the cross of Christ and circumcision. To Paul, the cross represents what Jesus did to redeem us from our sin and from the penalty that's due to us because we couldn't keep God's law perfectly. Now the cross then represents the source of God's salvation. Circumcision stands for any human effort that tries to add what God accomplished at the cross. Remember, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing humans can add. So the cross really is Paul's shorthand labeled to summarize the teaching of God's grace and the circumcision is his label to summarize the teaching of those who pervert the gospel by adding to it. So with pen in hand, Paul writes down here two understandings of salvation that have been at war throughout the whole letter. And the first one is evil, and the second one is good, and it's the one he anticipates that we would follow. So we're going to look at it in that order. Let's look at the evil theology described in verses 12 and 13. Once again, it demonstrates that the, the, a perverted gospel ends up confusing God's people. Do the Gentile believers have to be circumcised as a Jew to enjoy a full acceptance with God? Paul said no, and he suffered for it. The Judaizers said yes, and they prospered. But what's their motive? Verse 12 says that Paul says, They force you to be circumcised that they might not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. And then verse 13, they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. So he has a twofold motive here. First of all, to avoid conflict, and then to count coup, although it's a different kind of scalp in this case. With the pen in his own hand, the two things he wants to warn us about most are these. The, the desire to avoid persecution, or human cowardice, and spiritual pride that drives them to make a good impression on people. Well, why are these so dangerous? Well, if you're governed by fear of being rejected and you crave being praised, you can't embrace Christ crucified. The Judaizers have to substitute morality for the cross of Christ because the cross opens a door to persecution and it puts an end to their pride. They set aside the cross because they want to avoid persecution and they're proud of their religious zeal, their cutting-edge theology, as it were. And so they reject the cross. The cross of Christ is a great stumbling block for people who will not stumble, humble themselves before God and before man. Because to these people, the cross was offensive because it would be the cause of their persecution and their suffering. To find your salvation alone in the cross of Christ 
was so abominable to the unbelieving Jew that those who believed it were persecuted. Crucifixion wasn't even a term that the Romans used. They had euphemisms to use to substitute for it because it was such a horrendous way to die. It was God's Messiah would certainly not die the death of a common criminal. Now we see, after a couple thousand years, we see the cross just as a religious symbol. But in Paul's days, it was a horrendous means of execution and not something that you'd be, you'd be proud of. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to read the Cotton Patch version of the Bible. It's probably outlawed by now. A paraphrase written in the South. And he, the, he tries to catch how abhorrent, abhorrent the term cross was by this paraphrase. God forbid that I should ever take pride in anything except in the lynching of our Lord Jesus Christ. That comes close to carrying the same horror that, cross, that the cross carried in the Old Testament, in New Testament times. So to avoid persecution, the Judaizers played down the cross and they promoted circumcision. So this setting aside of the cross enabled the Judaizers to gain the praise of the Jews rather than the persecution that Paul and other Christians were experiencing because they preached the cross. Now the love of God comes through to us through Christ crucified so that we can see what our sin really deserved. I mean, the cross just shows us how ridiculous it is to try to earn God's favor. We're totally dependent upon his grace to save us and keep us. It's just immorally impossible to be proud at the foot of the cross. So and as for those who don't want to humble themselves before God, the cross remains an offense and a scandal. Because the cross not only humbles us before God, it also humbles us before men. Remember Jesus' words, except a man take up his cross and follow me, he cannot be my disciple. So to follow Christ in his resurrected glory, we have to continually join him on the road to Calvary. But that road is where people make fun of you. It's where they shun you. It's where they cancel you. Therefore, no one who must have the praise of men is going to join Christ on the way to the cross. That's the bad theology. Let's look at the good theology in verses 14 and 15, because Paul gives us that as well. This is what he wants us to live out and to teach to others. Verse 16 says that God's peace and mercy belong to people who live out this particular theology. But far be it for me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. We can't really boast in the cross in ourselves at the same time. Because only when we've humbled ourselves as hell-deserving sinners will we ever give up boasting about ourselves and spend the rest of our days glorying in the cross and what Jesus did for us. So as a result, he says, we in the world have parted company. Each has been crucified to the other. Now that we see ourselves as sinners and Christ crucified to bear our sins, we no longer care what the world around us thinks about us, says about us, does to us. He says, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. But so what is this new creation that, that counts for everything? Well, the new creation is what exists when the flesh, which is me with my ego enthroned in control in my life, when that flesh is crucified with Christ. And we can see a little parallelism here. If you look in chapter 6, verse 15, where it says, Neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, 
but a new creation. If we were to back up to chapter 5, we have an almost parallel statement. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is of any value, but only faith working through love. So if you compare two things that are equal to each other, that means I would think that the results are equal to each other. I realize that's logic and, and it's white privilege, but here's the parallel thoughts right here, obvious. So if these are parallel, then obviously these must be parallel, talking about the same thing. So a new creation and faith working through love are essentially equivalent in meaning. And the new, the new Paul is created when the old Paul is crucified with Christ. And the new Paul lives by faith that works through love. Which restates, once again, chapter 2, verse 20, kind of the key chapter or verse in the, in the book. I've been crucified with Christ, but it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. So in a sense, Paul's saying he doesn't live anymore. Christ lives through him. But of course he does live. He physically, was physically present. And the new Paul is the Paul who depends so much on Christ that it's like Christ is living his life through him. So the new creation in chapter 6, verse 15, is talking about utter dependence on Christ day by day, minute by minute. It's a keeping in step with the Spirit. Or we could say that the new creation is the power of God's Spirit unleashed in us as we lean on him. That power is a taste of God's future kingdom, which we get to experience today. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, this is how Paul puts it. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's what? He's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And he says, all this is from God. So Paul mentions his rejection of the world and the world's rejection of him in order to magnify the value of Christ crucified. I mean, he says the status and, and the honors and the pleasure of this world is like a big garbage heap in comparison with Jesus Christ. Paul was held captive by one great scene in world history, which is that cross on Golgotha. And on it, the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. So if we're going to summarize all this and put it into some form we could see, what are the contrasts between those who, who deny the value of the cross and those who glory in the cross, which really is glory in what it means? Well, we can see that the, the cross deniers want to excel at religious rituals because they crave the applause of key people. But cross lovers regard human applause, once again, as a pile of garbage compared to the pleasure of knowing Christ. There's no comparison. And secondly, cross deniers fear persecution and rejection from men more than they cherish the cross of Christ. But cross lovers expect and accept persecution from the same world that crucified Christ and said, you're not going get, to get off any easier than I did. In fact, they say with Paul, this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 
The third thing is that cross deniers regard outward forms, like circumcision or even baptism in our day, as the key to religious life. But cross lovers regard an inner new creation as the essence of religious life. Cross deniers figure that if you clean up the outside, the in, clean up the outside, the inside will come along eventually. Cross deniers figure that if you clean up the outside, you'll actually get to the root of pride, but you don't. It never leaves the root of pride. It, leaves it, it never leaves it untouched. Religion and morality are useful outlets for their, their uncrucified self-reliance. But cross lovers know that for Christ to be king, we have to die. And a brand new creation of humility and Christ-reliance has to replace that pride and self-reliance. Remember, it's Jesus who said that the things that, that cause you to be unclean come from the inside out of the heart, not from the outside. So the change God makes is from the inside to the out. And fourth, cross deniers really have to avoid the cross because the splinters of the old rugged cross always pop the balloon of their pride and their self-exaltation. But cross lovers glory in the cross. They cherish it above all things. So the issue that underlies the contrasting views of Paul and the Judaizers toward the cross and circumcision is spiritual pride and persecution. So while the mark of circumcision was the Judaizers' badge of discipleship, the marks on Paul's body, those of his persecution, were his evidence of belonging to Christ. That was his badge of discipleship. And everyone who is new creation receives that blessing in verse 16. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Now this benediction grants peace and mercy, peace between Jew and Gentile, and mercy from God for sinners. But, but this peace and mercy are only available to those who, he says, walk by this rule. Now a rule is a principle or it's a standard. It's our same word, it's the word canon, which is what we get for the measuring, the, uh, the collection of books that we have here is called the canon. It's a measuring, way of measuring. It's a standard. So in this case, rule means salvation through the cross alone. For the Judaizers, circumcision was the norm. It was a standard to determine who was inside or outside the family of God. But circumcision means absolutely nothing to those who are part of the new creation. The Christian standard, Paul says, is the cross of Christ. Your being inside or outside of God's family depends on your faith in, the Christ, in Christ crucified. Now this phrase, the, the, this blessing, this uh, benediction, be upon them and upon the Israel of God, that's a significant one when you look at biblical theology, if you're looking at, at themes. The blessing of peace and mercy is a traditional Jewish benediction. If you ever go to a Jewish website, you'll find it all over the place. But Paul used it to refer to true Jews, to those who are the true children of Abraham whether ethnic Jews or Gentiles. It's a way of saying that the church is the new Israel. There's a continuity. There's one people of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's one way of salvation, and it's been the same from Adam and Eve all the way up to the very end. That is faith in Jesus Christ, either looking ahead or looking back. There's only one way. 
In chapter 3, verse 7, we said, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Or chapter 4, 26, But Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. So God has one people in Christ. It's the cross that holds us together, that unites us. So the promises that God made to Israel are fulfilled in the true spiritual Israel, which is us, the church, the body of Christ. We share a common boast in the cross and in the cross alone. So with that kind of a, that understanding of what the basic issue is, now we can loop back to verse 6 again and begin to understand a little bit why Paul found it necessary to instruct the Galatian saints to support those who ministered the word of God to them. I mean, people pay for goods and services in accordance with the value that they attach to them. We don't pay the same price for silver as we do for gold, simply because we value gold more highly. Now, the Judaizers and some of the Galatian people as well placed a very high value on human approval, on the absence of pain and persecution, and on the prosperity that resulted. Now, since the true gospel produced persecution and the different gospel promised peace and prosperity, it's not difficult to figure out who are the teachers who are going to get the most money. Who got the support? The problem of the neglected teachers was detrimental to the ongoing teaching ministry of the Galatian churches. But much more was an indication of a wrong orientation and a wrong motivation. The different gospel of the Judaizers tended to focus almost entirely on the present and on prosperity. The true gospel that Paul preached focused on the cross of Christ, by which men are saved, and of which the people must participate today by taking up their cross, and it's also looking to the future, not just to the present. So whether or not all the, all the Galatian people had totally accepted the theology of the Judaizers, we don't know, but they have obviously come to accept a lot of their thinking. To pay the preacher for teaching them that they would need to suffer for the cause of Christ, that they must take up their cross, was spending good money on a bad cause, if you're only looking at the externals and this world. Who wants to pay for hearing about pain and persecution? Well, verses 7 through 10 are what actually seeks to correct that shallow thinking by referring to a common, a very common biblical principle, which if you read through the Gospels, you see all over the place. You reap what you sow. Actions have consequences. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. So the problem, you remember, that the Judaizers had with suffering was it was just a logical outflow of their short-sighted worldview. They didn't want to suffer. The Judaizers, like most men today, seek to experience pleasure and avoid pain. And they view life only in terms of what you can see and what you can experience today, the physical things. And Paul wants them to adopt a much longer-range understanding, which he characterizes by sowing and reaping. It's a longer-term process. It's a looking-ahead process. Now, once again, remember that the flesh we've already seen is a sinful nature that we inherited from Adam. The spirit is our new nature in Christ. So in chapter 5, remember, Paul taught that these two natures are locked in mortal combat as long as we live here on earth. Remember that the works of the flesh are opposed to the fruit of the Spirit, so that impurity, hatred, discord always battle against love, peace, and self-control. So now Paul changes the image. He goes from fighting to farming. 
A man reaps what he sows. And one commentator from days past states it this way. There are two sorts of seeds that men sow in this life, good and evil. Two kinds of sowers, spiritual men and carnal men. Two sorts of ground in which this seed is sown, the flesh and the spirit. Two sorts of harvest that men are to reap according to the, to the seed, corruption and life. We should get summarized in this old saying here. Sow a thought, reap an act. Sow an act, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. Kind of picks up on Second Peter, kind of. So actions have consequences, and God is not going to be mocked. God cannot be mocked. Maybe in the short term, but not in the long term. He says, don't be deceived. Don't be fooled. You're going to be held accountable. We're all going to be held accountable for what we do, regardless of what our culture might tell us. We can't turn up our noses at God, which is what this whole idea of mocking means. No one's going to escape him forever. Ask Goliath. Asking Herod the Great. In Romans 2, Paul tells, it, tells this. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Now, there's more than one way to sow, and thankfully the seeds of destruction are not the only kind of seeds that we can sow. When good seed is, is sown in a fertile field, usually you get a rich harvest. The one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life, he tells us. So sowing to the Spirit means following the lead of the Spirit, keeping in step with him, walking by the Spirit, by obeying his instructions for what it really means to live a holy life and surrendering our life in front of the cross. In particular, it means sowing the kind of seed that comes from the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. In general, fruit has a, has a sweet, fleshy part that surrounds a seed or seeds. Or for the pomegranate, it's all seeds. The fruit of the Spirit is the produce of God's grace in the life of the Christian. So when Paul speaks of sowing and reaping in chapter 6, he's placing the emphasis on what we're about to do. But in a way that reminds us as well that it's God who gives the fruit. The farmer doesn't produce fruit. He plants seedlings, he tends the orchard, and when the time is right, he harvests the fruit that God gives. The fruit of the Spirit actually contains within it the seeds that can actually generate more fruit of the Spirit. Now if you want to, some of you who, are, who have a lot of time on your hands and want to do some study, this thought crossed my mind, and I didn't take time to develop it here. If you look back to the, to the temple, the first temple, which is the Garden of Eden, it's the place where God met with Adam and Eve and walked with them. In the center of that garden, there was a, in the center of Eden was a garden. And that garden had contained all kinds of fruit. And if you look through the history of how the, the if you look even at ancient history in other cultures, all the big temples, all the major temples, were arboreal. They had trees and fruit trees around the temples, which is kind of an understanding of way back when, before uh, the rebellion, they knew something about how God had created the original garden. 
So fruit trees, in, in particular, are always accompany a, a temple. And if you look also at the, at the Jewish temple, they didn't have trees necessarily, but what did they have all over the place? Inside the temple, pomegranates. What do they have embroidered on the, on the robes of the chief, by the priests? Pomegranates, which is about as seedy as you can get. Uh, the whole concept then of fruit of the Spirit, I think, is really tied to the fact that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is God's temple. We're in Jesus, so we are part of God's temple. Fruit should be a natural accompaniment of being in God's temple. So our bearing fruit is really kind of natural. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. We are to bear fruit, because that's what temples do. So anyway, I just I wasn't going to spend that much time on it, but you can, you can follow the rabbit trail yourself. Well, sowing the Spirit means living for Christ in every area of life. Every time we think a thought or speak a word or do anything for the glory of God, we're sowing to his Spirit. We're spreading seed. But sowing and reaping are always separated by time. I mean, sowing is the beginning of the process, while reaping is the culmination at the end of it. When the farmer sows his field, he has to do it in faith trusting that all of his efforts are eventually going to be worthwhile. So nearly everything that the farmer does, or the orchardist does, or the, the one who owns the vineyard does, he does in light of what he hopes the outcome to be. He's hoping for an outcome. So the principle of sowing and reaping really reminds us that our sowing is going to ultimately be rewarded, but that may not happen until the Lord returns. He didn't say it's going to be immediate. There's going to be a period of time in there between the reaping and the sowing. But the preoccupation of the Judaizers was with the here and now, with the present prosperity and the, and the praise that they wanted because they lost sight, if they ever had it, of eternity. Now, that same erroneous orientation and motivation is just as prevalent today, maybe, maybe even more so, than it was in Paul's day. Why is it? that many of the messages that are preached and the books that are written have success or self-improvement or therapy as their goal rather than faithfulness and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his word. Why do we keep measuring success by outward means, by external standards or by the praise of men or how big your church is or whatever else other symbol you might have? Because it's we, like the Galatians of old, we just become too preoccupied with ourselves and with our present happiness and our contentment and our success. I couldn't resist. Um, here's your modern Judaizers. Here are the current perverters of the gospel. A couple of them, anyway. The more wealthy ones. Those whose message, of the cro whose message is the cross go without, while those whose ministry message is the good life prosper. Often, in this case, especially at the expense of their supporters. This is kind of what the Galatians were experiencing as well, I think, with the Judaizers. So this whole principle of sowing and reaping should motivate us to be diligent and to be faithful in our task until the Lord's return. Paul knew how easy it's going to be to slack off in the Christian life. All too often, I mean, Christians begin the ministry with great zeal only to lose heart. Sometimes it's because 
nobody expresses appreciation for what we do or gives any recognition for what's been accomplished. Sometimes it's because they get criticized for what they do. Sometimes it's because they just get bored and they want something more exciting, more successful, uh, more significant. And often it's because the results we want don't happen on our timetable. William Carey was a cobbler in England in the mid-1700s. He became a Christian in his early 20s, and without much money, he taught himself Greek and Hebrew. But he didn't stop there. In 1792, he organized a missionary society. And at its inaugural meeting, he preached a sermon with the call to expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Now, within a year, Carey and a man named John Thomas, a former surgeon, and Carey's family, which now included three boys and another child on the way, were on a ship headed for India. Now, he saw no fruit in people's lives, although he planted many seeds. He translated portions of the New Testament into Bengali, the trade language of India, and he shared God's word wherever he could. And finally, after seven years of faithful work, and the loss of his wife and his four sons, the situation changed. In 1800, Carey baptized his first convert, a man named Krishna Paul. And two months later, he published his first Bengali New Testament. I mean, with this and subsequent editions, Carey and his colleagues laid the foundation for the study of modern Bengali. He laid the foundation of their language, which up to this time had been an unsettled dialect just like Luther gave the form of, current, of modern German and Calvin gave the form of modern French through Bible translation. Now, Carey continued, he was a gifted linguist, and he continued over the next 28 years to continue to expect great things. And his, he and his students translated the entire Bible into all of India's major languages, Bengali, Hindi, uh, let's see, Assamese, and Sanskrit, and parts of 209 other languages and dialects. And he's now identified as the father of the modern missionary movement. But he was only allowed to participate in the harvest after he had planted a whole lot of seeds of God's word and loving acts toward the Indian people. He was tempted so many times to quit. If you read some of his correspondence, I wonder why he didn't quit. But he persevered without a furlough for 43 years. He was also able to taste eternal life, this sight of glory. Paul says that's what's going to happen as we walk with the Spirit, walk in step with the Spirit. He said, you're going to experience eternal life this side of glory. Which Eternal life is not just life that lasts forever. Eternal life is the present possession of all who trust in Christ as our Savior and Lord. Because eternal life is not primarily about duration, about how long it lasts, but it's about the quality of life. It reminds me of a homely illustration of family outings every fall to pick huckleberries. The plan was to gather enough berries to carry us through till the next season. But not all the berries make it into jam or pie. Our rule was, with our girls, that you can eat one berry for each berry you put in the bucket. Not sure that was always followed because some girls had some really purple fingers and an almost empty bucket. But... It was important that each of the girls enjoy now some of the fruit of their labor, as they picked. And in a similar way, God allows us to reap some of God's rewards in this life, too, 
He gives us a small taste of what he has in store in eternity. And he does it now. That's how gracious he is. That's what the presence of the Holy Spirit means in our life. That whole new life that's yet to come in the future, he's giving us pieces of it now to enjoy. So as we wait patiently for the harvest, our instructions are really very specific. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. That's us. Do good to everyone, but especially those who are your brothers and sisters. Doing good means meeting people's needs. And one of the ways of meeting people's needs is using the, the, the six, I call them the, the six acts of charity, the six acts of love, It's given to us in Matthew chapter 25 in Paul and in, in Jesus' final words on the, on the Mount of Olives, which talked a lot about the end times, but he also talks about this. Here are the six acts of love. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. So our activities in actually in walking by the Spirit and walking in step with the Spirit are probably in some way going to involve one or more of these six. To all people, he says, but especially to those who are in the household of faith, those who are your brothers and sisters. Well, we've seen that there's a fundamental difference between the motivation of the Judaizers and the motivation of the one who seeks to sow to the Spirit. Because the Judaizers, remember, are really only concerned with himself until he ends up perverting the gospel, minimizing the cross, of course, to focus on external behaviors and place the heavy burden of circumcision and law-keeping on other people because it makes things easier on himself. Paul, on the other hand, and all who would be like him, have the mind of the master, which is taking up your cross in order to serve others, not to avoid serving or to have them serve you, as Jesus put it in Mark chapter 10, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45. So we can estimate how much we value the cross by noting how willing we are to bear it for other people. Jesus bore the cross to bring about our salvation, and he commands us to take up our cross, to obey him in serving others, to keep in step with the spirit of truth that he's given us. And the source of our obedience is love for the one who saved us, and he keeps us. And his love is shown in how well we serve others with joy in our hearts for the privilege of doing it for him, of serving him. And the principle of sowing and reaping, then, encourages us to faithfully endure, looking not to the immediate gains, but to those that lie ahead, the reaping of things spiritual and eternal. So Paul's final word to the Galatian Christians is but a reminder and a repetition of the whole theme of the epistle, the grace of God. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. He didn't forget that they were family. <laughs> Despite some of the harsh things that he said in this book, he ends with the fact, we're brothers. We're all part of the same family. And there's no more comforting message than the message of, of God's grace. The fact that God takes his, his future power and he puts it in our life now to, op, to operate in our life today. That's what grace really is. Grace is a power. It's not a passive thing. It's the power of the future put in our life in the present. 
God's grace is the power. It is a power. May we, like the Galatians, be overcome with the grace of God to us, and may we show that grace to others as we seek to do good to all men, especially to our brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Father, you've given us much to think about, much to think about how we orient our lives, how we put you first, how we actually serve you, how we put your interests ahead of our own interests. Father, that's where we want to be. We want to be servants of yours who glorify you. We want the seeds of the fruit you plant in our lives to end up in the lives of other people as well, that it might bear fruit there as well. So enable us, Father, to rely on you, to cast our total dependence upon you, to consider the world crucified to us and us to the world, that we're not in sync with each other anymore. So help us, Father, to learn how to walk more faithfully by your light and by the light of your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.